Welcome to the Did Nothing Wrong podcast, where we try to cut through the noise and help you make sense of the chaotic information space around us. I'm Griff Somke. And I'm Jay McKenzie. Samantha Kuttner is an experienced consultant with a focus on preventing violent extremism. Her research on violent extremism and the gender dynamics of radicalization has been published in the International Center for Counterterrorism Studies in The Hague and Georgetown Journal of International Affairs. Samantha's expertise has led her to consult with major tech companies to enhance their collaboration across private and government sectors and has helped ensure accurate, responsible news coverage of these groups since 2018. Samantha is the co-founder of Glitter Pill LLC, a consulting company that seeks to prevent violent extremism through collaboration and strategic partnerships. With her unique background and extensive experience, Samantha provided written expert testimony to the January 6th Commission in relation to their investigations of the attack on the United States Capitol building that day. We're thrilled to have her join us today. If you like what you're hearing, please give us a rating and a review on the app that you're listening on. Be sure to subscribe at didnothingwrongpod.com to get our content straight into your inbox. All of our work is free, but we're extremely grateful for paid subscriptions and donations that ensure that we can keep doing this important work. Thank you. Samantha, welcome to Did Nothing Wrong. Thanks for having me. Can you explain you and your team's Proud Boys incident map and ethnographic research data? What all are you covering and tracking with this? So we're tracking transnational far-right extremism. We have incidents of not just Proud Boys, but the broader milieu of extremist movements and decentralized networks. And we don't use a list-based analysis. We look at behavior in groups. And um, our general definition is violent extremism as the violent denial of diversity, which gets around some of the more political topics in covering violent extremism. And We've been doing that separately since about 2017, 2018, but my co-founder Bjorn Eiler and I kind of pooled forces in 2019 and started consolidating what we had together with not just Proud Boys incidents, but the global far-right movement. Right, right. Because there's a lot that's out there right now that doesn't necessarily fit under the category of Proud Boys. You've got quite a few of these people showing up in Europe, England, um, Australia, etc. So there's there's quite a lot out there. What are you seeing in the way of trends towards these days with this? Well, the Proud Boys are often at the forefront of movements before they metastasize and violent extremist image events, things for designed for the public spectacle. So um, you'll see late 2021, early 2022, Proud Boys disrupting school board meetings with like signs uh, that were protesting against grooming and things of that nature. And, you know, a few of the more accelerationist contingents were in Florida at the anti-Disney protests. And at the time, people thought it was absurd and weren't taking it seriously. And now it has escalated to the point where legislation is trying to, people are calling for the eradication of trans people at major political events. So building momentum for narratives and movements is is how you see their offline behavior, like fueling that. For specific incidents, a lot of Proud Boys um, chapters 
will have events simultaneously in different cities. And we think, based on the data that we've collected, that's to maximize their visibility and make them seem like they are more in like numerous than they might be in reality. There's not really an accurate tally of how many members exist at the moment. No, no, of um, course. But they, they will always try to inflate those numbers to gain more momentum and recruit. Right, right. And if you have many cities, many areas around the country and around the world where you're doing an event all on the same day, you can definitely count on some media coverage that will help it look even bigger. We've seen that with groups like Goyam Defense League, who send seven guys out on a, a bridge to drop a banner and manage to get national news coverage and international in some cases for that. So yeah, that definitely makes sense. Did you deal with that much with January 6th? Because I know the Proud Boys were obviously at the Capitol and were, were heavily involved, but there were supposed to be more events around the country at different state houses, and there was a little bit, but nothing really popped up. Were the, were the Proud Boys attempting to do more on January 6th that just didn't really come off, or were they entirely focused on D.C.? Um, they were entirely focused on D.C. Uh, they were planning and they did have incidents at other state legislators. What we saw were a lot of the cities that had stopped the steel movements also had that type of activity. So that's just kind of, you know, not you can't predict that with certainty, but there is an overlap between how many people claim that the election was stolen and how many people were willfully disrupting the legislature. But that also goes back to 2019. So if you go back into the Proud Boys incident map data, Proud Boys were more or less focused testing this level of disruption um, in the Pacific Northwest region first and then in other cities. That makes sense. Right. Yeah. Being up here in the Pacific Northwest, I'm in Seattle. And I remember seeing a lot of this stuff very early on in 2017. We were hearing about Proud Boys chapters forming in areas around me. And it was kind of a little bit like disconcerting. But considering the history of the region, we've always gotten a lot of this kind of stuff first when it comes to extremists like this. Mm -hmm. So how is your research different from the usual journalism that we see in the, the reporting that we see on the Proud Boys. I know you've been quoted quite a bit in, in stories about right-wing extremism. And I mean, you've covered all sorts of topics and it's really interesting to, to read through that. But what, I know you, you conduct a lot of interviews, you talk to people, you try to understand what motivates them. But how, how is your understanding of what draws people into these movements and how, is it, how does it better inform you on, um, you know, your research and, and the, the information that you glean from these people? Yeah. So as someone who was part of the Chabad community in Las Vegas, of all places, uh, I was very interested in understanding religious fundamentalism, the, the literal interpretation of biblical texts. Because whenever you take a document and make this, this static ever present thing in the modern era, you're going to have a lot of uh, interesting contradictions or like, like people pivot in all sorts of ways to justify things that don't necessarily fit into our current times. So my early research was focused on foreign terrorism. But after Charlottesville, when a student at my university became the poster child for the Unite the Right rally, I decided to switch to 
studying domestic terrorism. And at the time, people really weren't seeing the Proud Boys as a domestic terrorist entity. But I saw them pivot from their activity in Charlottesville and their claims that the members who were there weren't really members and the group was a misunderstood fraternal drinking organization. So some of my early questions were, you know, what is the reality of being a member? And because I had experience with facilitating um, rapport as a writing center consultant, some of my early research was how to reduce uh, student anxiety surrounding writing center papers. So we had to acknowledge our limitations that we were not therapists, nor could we act in any capacity as therapists. But there were certain principles of Rogerian listening and active listening that could help decrease student anxiety. And to my, uh, like, was very happily surprised that that also translated into conducting ethnographic research with people who would have been incredibly hostile to outsiders like me. Um, so uh, the level of access that I have to Proud Boys is unique. And there is an understanding that there's not going to be doxing because I still had to adhere by IRB standards. But I really sought to understand the worldview well enough that in the future, I could be a positive force for helping facilitate disengagement. So my insights are um, really focused on care and accountability. And I think that, that that balance of both is something that enhances uh, or can enhance, has enhanced in the past, certain journalistic coverage of the group when this new phenomenon, this new group, and they're engaging in really strange behavior. How do you make sense of it? Um, that's where I think I stepped in to help fill the gap. You know, speaking of trust, you, you've stated on your website that you have dedicated your life to, quote, helping people leave violent extremism and white supremacy. It's a lofty goal and an important one, but there are plenty of issues out there with false prophets who claim to be part of the solution and end up becoming part of the problem. What do you tell people when they're trying to figure out who they can trust in your line of work? Don't be Jim Stewartson. <laughs> uh, <laughs> now you've done it. We're all on the list. In all, in all seriousness, um, there need to be people out there that others can trust on the quote unquote other side when they're ready to leave. And it's an incredible disservice to be motivated for reasons other than genuinely wanting to help someone in a moment in need. Um, for me, my guiding philosophy is that there needs to be a place where a proud boy or another extremist having a moment of doubt can meet with someone and really think through something before they take an action that can't be taken back. That's been the driving force in all of my work. Um, regarding disengagement and de-radicalization, I don't like the term de-radicalization because it relates to cognitive schemas you could never really um, understand. Uh, it is an internal structure you're never going to have access to in another person, so you can never measure whether or not they've effectively de-radicalized. I prefer the term facilitating disengagement because it really, mm -hmm. it, it ultimately is one person's choice to leave. You never convince or persuade anyone to do anything and anyone who uses some type of coercion it's not going to be effective and it's, it's missing the point. Um, you're also not enabling shitty behavior. I, I don't know how to say that. And another other way, like the idiot compassion, like, you know, you don't let people pull up like a fast one over you. So holding your boundaries is really important in that. But I think 
all people can be is a positive force for someone when they're ready to make the decision to leave. And I stumbled into it because in the course of ethnographic research, Proud Boys started leaving and telling me they were leaving. And one person said, I'm leaving and I blame you. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I think that it gets into another area of visibility because there need to be people out there doing good work that people can trust. But anytime someone reaches a certain level of success, there seems to be um, like a like a mob that like automatically questions their, uh, you know, their sincerity. And I mean, I'm not saying that that shouldn't exist, but um, people need to be more open to a diversity of tactics in the fight mm-hmm. against fascism and understand that people don't like get put on kill lists for doing this work if they don't genuinely care about what they're doing. And obviously with false prophets, it is really good to, you know, because I got a crash course in everything not to do with the first organization that I was a part of. I would ask people like the way you're asking me right now, like, why do you do what you do? What motivates you? Because I think with that question, the way somebody answers it, especially if they're very public and they're just disengagement and de-radicalization work, It'll tell you if they're in it for some type of like narcissistic need for attention or be the one to save people from terrorism. That's a behavior that's seen in a lot of the former sphere with people who have formed organizations. So a little bit long and Bannon-esque rambling Mm -hmm. there, but uh, (laughs) there's no chance, but be skeptical at the same time. (laughs) There's no easy answer, is there? And I, and I'm, I listen to some of your podcast and and just some of your work. It does feel like you've dealt with people calling you a sympathizer quite a bit for these groups, which to me, I, I understand how people get there and understand, you know, you get a certain amount of credibility and people want to attack you or want to kind of take that away from you so they can claim it for themselves. But I think it's, I think it's really important to understand the people that you're studying mm-hmm. and and you seem to and i guess i guess there's going to be always be people out there who are threatened by that and that that must be something that you you deal with a lot yeah and the more i you know establish myself in my career and really get lit up with the work my team's doing i just accept that as being a byproduct of doing the work the work's not going to stop um, I have, I don't know, 6,000 followers on Twitter, which is arguably not enough, but if I, I mean, not enough, not a lot, <laughs> <laughs> but if I, well, well, both <laughs> honestly, but <laughs> if I were to think about every one of those individuals and their opinion of me, I would never be able to do the work that I'd be able to do. I'm um, also regarding being a fascist sympathizer. I try to emphasize that empathy is not an endorsement of abhorrent views. It's just a way to understand how someone comes to those views. And that's not for everybody to empathize with. It's not, I don't advocate for people doing that work. I think people feel called to doing it and they do it for that reason. But um it does not mean that you're making excuses when people are engaging in behavior that dehumanizes and could potentially harm people. Well, you've dealt with 
what you might call formers, people who were involved in far-right extremist groups who got out and claimed to be working against those movements now, the same ones they used to support. But there's an inherent danger with this because not everyone who claims to have changed really has. Uh, What do you tell people to look out for when dealing with quote-unquote formers? This is something I told Jeff Scoop directly when he first left. I was like, okay, you were in a former neo-Nazi organization, one of the leaders, and now you're a peace advocate and nobody understands how you got from here to there. But now you're just here and visible and you're going in conferences. So why? And there was never really a sufficient answer and you can come to whatever conclusions you like about that. I can't infer based on those two data points what somebody's thinking, but There was also Matthew Heimbach, who stated on a neo-Nazi podcast that he wanted to get into enemy strongholds and share a watered-down version of his ideology and did exactly that. Um, So the mark of a former in terms of gauging the sincerity of their atonement is if they say I'm leaving and there isn't like a very public and here's what I'm doing and here's the speaking circuit and here's my guest speaking fee and, you know, like. There's a lot of private atonement and a genuine desire to to change. I think uh, there was a female, oh, I forget her name, but she provided information to journalists about what it was like to work for, I believe it was Breitbart or another outlet. Katie McHugh. So she was doing private atoning and also providing valuable information to people as she was getting out. But she wasn't, look at me doing all of these things. It's like, I was in, here's what I've seen. Um, so I think that there has to be a combination of like, atoning quietly, and then actual tangible actions to show that you are committed to preventing harm. But even the best example of a person who was sufficiently, uh, you know, atoned or, you know, tried to make things right, it will always be in the back of someone's minds, like, like once a Nazi, always a Nazi, right? Right. I mean, and that's for every one individual to, to figure out because a person who is genuinely remorseful can apologize to the people that they have harmed but they're also not entitled to a person forgiving them so yeah we've actually seen guys recently like chuck johnson and richard spencer gaining left-wing audiences on twitter and people are seemingly buying the idea that these guys are on their side now because well they voted for biden apparently but I haven't really seen any evidence that they've denounced any of their former views or anything but their former support for Trump. Uh, have you? I haven't really. And there's a sense that Richard Spencer's issues with the broader far right are class based. And it's more just an annoyance with like the plebes than, <laughs> <laughs> than anything else. I've seen a lot of words, but I really haven't seen a lot of you know action in regard to tangible steps. I mean, it's really easy to... Be on Twitter saying whatever you want to say, but I, I really can't gauge the sincerity of Chuck Johnson or Richard Spencer. I think everyone deserves a chance. However, time will tell. <laughs> a lot of your work really sounds like someone going to therapy for mental health issues. I, I, I'm I'm struck by that. With the more that you've you've talked about this in terms of getting better with with every case being different and unique and having to assess each person uh, based on their own situation. I I just find that fascinating. I think it's so important to highlight the the fact that people have to make this decision for themselves. You can, you know, you can lead them 
to a horse to water, but they have to actually decide to do this and they have to take steps to show that they're, that they're different. They want to be part of the solution. And and especially with those two, I haven't seen a lot of evidence, but for whatever reason, some people on the left have decided that they're on their side now, I guess, could you break down a little bit? Why would someone claim to have changed their belief system and want to ingratiate themselves with a different audience? What could they be looking to accomplish by doing this? The charitable interpretation is they want to find an alternative sense of belonging that's not predicated on violent extremism. The perhaps more realistic goal is someone conscious of their manipulations who wants to infiltrate those groups. Hmm. Yeah, that... uh... That first one's a very charitable interpretation, I think, in a lot of cases, um, especially when you look at the history of people who have gone ahead and done that. You mentioned Matthew Heimbach earlier, and now he's got another group going called Patriotic Socialists that's uh, off of anything he used to do, just more out in front with his his left-wing side than he previously was, I think, than with his stuff with Tradworker. Do you think that people on the left sometimes think they're immune, that they, they think they know better? Is, is there a, oh, I'm, I'm better than that, I would never get hooked into something <laughs> like QAnon or Proud Boys or right-wing extremism? Do you, do you run into that issue sometimes? Yes, and I will say something fairly controversial is that no one necessarily gets involved in far-right extremism or leftist politics if everything was entirely great in their lives. Um, (laughs) Sometimes the recognition that society is askew comes from personal events in your life where you may not feel powerless. And um, I think a lot of leftist activism comes from an anger and outrage uh, and a desire to affect change, but sometimes a way to distract themselves from their own sense of powerlessness at times. Um, and I think that the, I would never, uh, I would never do that. Like um, people who say, I would never cheat on my boyfriend or girlfriend. It's like, one, you have to have a boyfriend or girlfriend. Two, you only know who you are in a situation uh, when that situation presents themselves. So anyone who's first to say, I would never, they're probably the fastest to succumb to something when it happens because you're never, never. There's always, always, if that makes sense. Yeah, right. yeah. absolutely. So you've covered a lot of people in your work that we're familiar with and talked a lot about on this show. Um, one in particular I wanted to ask you about was Mike Flynn. Can you explain a little about what Christian nationalism means to he and his followers and how dangerous this is? Well, to understand Mike Flynn, you have to go farther back to the 2014 corruption issues in Ukraine. He's a disgraced military general and saw in QAnon something politically advantageous for him. And I'm not going to say he's not a Christian or anything because it's not my place to assess the validity of someone being a Christian, especially not as a Jewish person. <laughs> but um, I, I think that very similar to the Proud Boys, he saw it as a way to get into new audiences and really like a way for mass mobilization 
to occur. I think that his belief system is more on fighting what he perceives to be a corrupt government than it is as ideologically driven as people would think. How involved would you say Mike Flynn is with the Proud Boys? You did an interview with the Tampa Bay Times where you said of the two that they're trying to engage in local politics because that's where the fight is now. Um, What are they looking to gain with these local fights? Well, after January 6th, it just, the, the fight went down to the more local level. So trying to put more people in office who harbor extremist views and don't necessarily believe in democracy or, or supporting democracy. Uh, it, it's very kind of Bannon-esque in that um, you're trying to elect anti-establishment figures to established positions, to, to actual official positions where you have to legislate and create policies and think about your constituents. Um, so it is part of that that strategy. I mean, the fact that the Republican Party now has to pander to an increasingly more radicalized base with people who harbor views that are really counter to the reality of January 6th. It, it really is building a group of loyalists to whatever new, I don't want to say regime because that sounds incredibly dramatic, but the new party, the new you know populist leader that's forming, whether that's DeSantis or Trump, don't know yet. Well, speaking of that, how do you expect the Proud Boys to be deployed in the upcoming elections? Do you think they have a preference between Trump or DeSantis? And do you think they'll just support whoever the GOP nominee is? So I'll tell you a story about my chat with Enrique Tarrio. It was late 2020. Uh, Enrique Tarrio, the current and or former chairman of the Proud Boys, depending on who you talk to. Um, (laughs) And uh, it was after Trump denounced, like soft denounced Proud Boys. It was after the stand back and stand by comments where even his staffers were probably like, you need to do something about this. Like, you can't just fucking say that. Um, so, So Trump, you know, kind of pulled back his support. And then he got COVID. And I asked Tario how he felt about, um, I asked him how he felt about uh, Trump getting COVID. And uh, he said, well, he doesn't endorse us anymore. So, you know, a little flu couldn't hurt. Uh, and it <laughs> really uh it, it really does highlight the opportunism of the group that Trump is the thing that gave them power and it is the thing they continue to return to. But if they sense that the winds are blowing in a different direction, they will do the other thing. And you see this in their rallies as well. Like during one year, uh probably like you could get whiplash. They were, you know dressed in boogaloo gear Hmm. and you know you know they're very anti-cop and you know though i don't know if you know like the boogaloo slang of like what do you roast at a luau Mm -hmm. so uh, yeah so uh they were you know doing that and engaging that way and then going to these pro-cop rallies they're just kind of like i think they were just trying to hedging their bets like who's gonna be more supportive and like they'll adopt the aesthetics of whatever group is gaining momentum because their ideology isn't super coherent. It's more about visibility and coverage. Right. How very accelerationist of them. Exactly. Exactly. You nailed it. I think Matthew Kreiner and I at the Accelerationist Research Consortium have talked about classifying Cowboys as an accelerationist activity because new right doesn't fully capture it either. Mm -mm. It's something I definitely want to revisit with him in the future. Yes. um, Yeah. 
<laughs> I did want to follow up something we were just talking about because I, I imagine you talk to lots of Republicans, lots of Democrats, and I know there's a, a pretty kind of big divide, maybe growing divide between House Republicans and Senate Republicans. And Senate is, is much more moderate, um, isn't going to endorse a lot of the things that Kevin McCarthy is allowing to happen in the House. But whether it's it's Trump and MAGA or groups like the Proud Boys, how much do you feel like the Republican Party is is kind of held hostage to this extremism against their will? Because I, I know there are Republicans who, who see where this extremist rhetoric is going and it, they know it's anti-democratic and, and they want to stop it. But it's kind of like all the Republicans or almost all of the Republicans that voted to impeach Trump are now out of Congress. So do you think they, they just don't know how to deal with this right now? Considering the fact that most politicians will say whatever they need to say to secure power uh, and don't really have a spine to begin with, I think that there are very cowardly individuals who may know right from wrong, but just, you know, take the path of least resistance and not do anything that, you know, for a while I was like, why are they not standing up? And at first I was like, is there some form of blackmail against conservatives? Is there something else more nefarious at play? But I think the more realistic answer is um, a lot of people are like a bunch of cowards. And I also think that on the Democrat side, people are were temporarily lulled into thinking that a Biden presidency meant the threat was over when it's actually gained more momentum. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah, it sure has. So the one name that keeps coming up with the Proud Boys and came up, you know, from the very beginning was Roger Stone. How important do you think guys like Roger Stone and the InfoWars Network have been in growing the Proud Boys movement? Oh, they've been very key in, in growing the Proud Boys movement. Roger Stone has been the dirty trickster involved in politics, you know, since Watergate. He was an honorary Proud Boy, so he stated his first degree and didn't escalate further than that. But he was also having Proud Boys provide security as events. And I found it really interesting that prior to January 6th, Oath Keepers filled that spot for him. Um, so I do think that he is one of the figures that you know, you're not going to find a huge paper trail about him, but like he's he's also just very openly saying, you know, if if the election turns out in favor of this one candidate, you know, fuck them. Let's just say that we won. Let's just hope we're celebrating. I suspect it'll be I really do suspect it will still be up in the air. When that happens, the key thing to do is to claim victory. Possession is nine tenths of the law. No, we won. Sorry. Over. We won. You're wrong. Maybe see. I said, Lord, and let's get right to the violence. That's what I'm doing. smashing pumpkins, if you know Also, another figure who feels like the rules don't universally apply to him, and someone who's been involved in, you know, election interference, election meddling in other countries as well. So, I think that. He is one of the strategists of the group. I think that's undeniable. But whether or not you can point to direct evidence that would say that is is another thing. Yeah, they've they've figured out how to have a degree of deniability. And it's more and more, it does feel like we're dealing with these. I don't know if they're independent cells or I don't know if these people have just gotten better at covering their own ass. But it, even you're talking about the Proud Boys now and it's unclear 
like you said, how many of them there are. There's a lot we we don't know, and it seems like that's the way they want it to be. But I think in some cases they probably learn the hard way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. These guys have had a lot of practice, the right in general, of covering their tracks over the past few decades. Roger Stone being, you know, a front row seat to the Nixon administration and seeing all of those people end up getting convicted probably took some notes in terms of what to do and what not to do. And (laughs) you've got the Proud Boys themselves being influenced by a far-right culture that was kind of put in this current direction by people who were at one point put on trial by the government for seditious conspiracy and learned some lessons from that in terms of what to do and what not to do. So it's a little terrifying in some ways how well they've seemed to learn the lesson of let's not do anything that will get us, shall we say, busted for conspiracy up until January 6th. Speaking of seditious conspiracy, there are a few of these guys that are actually out there on trial in Washington right now for this. How do you see this going? I anticipate many uh, spectacles, delays, the attempt to declare a mistrial, um, the claims that the January 6th defendees are free speech martyrs. So the the framing of the group as victims. Uh, I know that as early as 2021, they were talking about the inhumane conditions at the prisons. Um, I do hope that whoever is involved in the prisons, uh, (laughs) not as a counter narrative win, but just in general, make sure that there's no evidence that they could claim that the the Proud Boys are being mistreated, even though they'll try to find that evidence. I just see everything that is at their disposal in terms of plausible deniability t- tactics, crypto fascism, attempts to use the coverage itself as a way to recruit is the thing that I'm most concerned about in the trial. Like if, if Gavin McGinnis gets to go on the stand and speak, he's going to propagandize the group. And I have reached out to certain people to be the counter to that should that happen. I'm really hoping it doesn't. Right. Um, yes. But regarding Gavin McGinnis, um, in our written expert testimony for the January 6th committee, we have an entire section on him because like Roger Stone, who was taking notes during Watergate, McGinnis attended a different conference where they were also looking at positioning and ways to move away from the Jewish question and things of that nature way before Proud Boys formed. So that might be worth looking into as well. The picture of him wearing the screwdriver shirt back in the day was a pretty big tell, got to say. Mm-hmm. Just aren't too many people who are big fans of that band that don't really come down on that somewhere. So I have to ask you this because because we broached the topic of anti-Semitism, but I am, I am both impressed by the fact that you do this work, being a Jewish woman. It has to make your job harder. And I, I, I did want to just ask, are there... Are there any stories related to that or or can you, is it just something that you sort of power through or is it something that you have to deal with a lot because we, we know you're dealing with people who are, are very clearly anti-Semitic? Uh, I think that the, uh, the over-sexualized myth of the Jewess comes into play a lot. And there's this simultaneous like hatred and or fascination with what I am not who I am as like an actual person, but like everything that 
Jews are supposed to be. I think that I'm a confusing figure for a lot of people. Hmm. And I also am a dancer and I'm not like shy about being a salsa dancer and other things because that's how I'm able to continue my work. But having a hobby like that is a very... I think the thing that bothers me more is when colleagues treat me as if uh, my work is not as legitimate by virtue, like because I am a dancer. Uh, there's lots of gendered tropes and general sexism that bothers me more than neo-Nazi behavior these days. Hmm. That's unfortunate. It really is, yeah. I also wanted to ask you about an article you wrote uh, called Take the Red Pill, Understanding the Allure of Conspiratorial Thinking Among Proud Boys. I was hoping you could briefly explain to people who don't know what the red pill is and why it's so alluring uh, for guys who end up joining the Proud Boys. Yeah, so um, the red pill more broadly refers to an awakening like Neo in the Matrix when he takes the red pill and sees this new reality. For Proud Boys, the new reality is them opening their eyes to female subjugation under feminism. And if they accept that as reality, they want to turn things right side up. But in their desire to turn things right side up, they're actually embracing a form of authoritarianism. Um, So the red pill is a gendered pathway into radicalization that a proud boy at the time he comes to that ideology sees as an awakening. Yeah. They think they have a, a unique insight to the world and almost gives them a superiority, doesn't it? Or at least a perceived superiority to the, compared to the rest of us. Yes. We know something you don't know. We're in on the secret, etc. I did want to ask you, there was the, the tweet by the official account of Smith & Wesson, the firearm manufacturer, and it had someone holding a gun and the, the person was wearing a what appeared to be a Proud Boy shirt. Did you get any sort of clarification on how that came to be or did they make any statement on uh, on that at all? Well, they claimed that it was didn't stand for Proud Boy, but Perception Brand, which was a smaller brand. But the color scheme, the font, mm. everything about that was intentional. And whether that's guerrilla marketing, because I know that shock and outrage will allow them to peddle more products, products being guns, which is terrifying, um, Mm. or there is a subtle wink and nod to the group Mm. is another like, you know, it, it, it very the vibes are like, you know, Rittenhouse did nothing wrong type. You know, that's that's kind of the it seems like that's the aesthetic and the uh, posturing that they're embracing, whether or not it's perception brands or Proud Boy. There is a level of intentionality that can't be denied at this point. People for years have tried to make similar claims and have groups backtrack and say they didn't mean that. It's just joking. It's just irony. No one can take a joke. We're past that point Mm -hmm. right now. And and the damage is already done. So even if it, even if it was, even if it wasn't intentional, which there's plenty of reason to question that. Yeah, the the narrative is already out there, and 
with social media, it really doesn't even take days. It takes hours. I'm just wearing this black and yellow Fred Perry shirt because I like it. It has nothing to do with anything else. Yeah. Okay. Cool. 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 Right. One of the things I've started just to help reality orient people right now is the Darbo U mini series where I have a guest on the Glitter Pill podcast and we're going to go through examples of Darbo in online spaces and rhetorical posturings. So it's like a little fun project just to help teach people what does collective narcissism look like? And how can you be mindful of the tactics people use to deny what you're actually, they're trying to deny the reality that you're seeing. Okay. Looking at your work history, the articles you've been quoted, the variety of topics you're knowledgeable of has kind of led to the next question. Clearly, you follow a lot of pretty important threads on the far right and right-wing extremism. Who are some of the people you see as doing the most important work right now? And do you have any suggestions for additional people we should ask to be on the show? Oh, yeah. I'd, I'd say Cynthia Miller-Idris at Peril, one of the first countering violence extremism labs in the country. is doing amazing work. Vidya Ramalingam is the uh, founder of Moonshot CVE, which is also doing incredible work in the um, not just de-radicalization and disengagement space, but in the you know more threat assessment space more broadly. Um, Dr. Amy Cooter, who studies militias. Uh, Amanda Moore, of course, I believe oh, was already on. Uh, yeah, we've had Amanda twice. She's great. Yeah. Yep. Um, there are many uh, QAnon researchers I could connect you with who are also doing incredible work. Sarah Hightower, of course, has done, you know, more research than most people would do in a lifetime. Right. Like, more just <laughs> legit work. I would say the founder of One People's Project, Daryl Lamont Jenkins. Mm, yeah, good thought. Definitely. Yeah. Oh, there's so many. Um, and then I think a lot of accountability journalists, like uh, Michael Hayden at the SPLC. Um, there are so many that, that are... are really continuing in the fight. Jose Paglieri, who is uh, focused more on the white collar crime element of this encroaching era of fascism. Yeah. I could send you a whole list. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's, we'd love that. That awesome. would be excellent. Definitely. Yeah, that's great. And we've had some of those people on the show already, and we're definitely going to reach out to some of the rest of them because there's just no shortage of what seems like this kind of work out there being done. Is there anything else that you'd want to go over something else that's important that maybe we should talk a little more about? Um, I think that because everyone sees like the tech sector imploding, it might be good to know that there are people out there who are interfacing with companies and fighting the battles. So not just referencing glitterpill.io, but, you know, potentially other companies, like people who are consulting in the area of violent extremism to help social media companies make better decisions in regard to dealing with the content on their platforms. Right. So there are people out there that if your trust and safety team, say at Twitter, whoever's left, and they have questions <laughs> about whether some of this stuff, what some of this stuff even is, because, you know, who can keep up with it full time besides people who spend their whole lives in the milieu? There are people that they can reach out to, like what you do as far as that mm -hmm. goes. Okay, right. That's great. Anything you, you want to plug or uh, mention before we go? Sure. Um, we try to keep up our hub for trauma-informed sustainable activism. We don't really have funding for that entity. But for anyone who wants to be a part of the community and benefit from the resources we've already developed, we have patreon.com slash take the glitter pill. And then for like 
I think the lowest tier is a dollar a month. People can gain access to a variety of the trauma-informed resources if they're really going through that and need a space in the community where no one's going to like judge them or <laughs> question their sincerity. They just like need to process whatever. It's a good space to be in. That's great. Yeah, that definitely sounds helpful. Well, Samantha, thank you so much for coming on with us today. We really appreciate you taking the time. You've got a lot going on and we appreciate that you'd spend some of that coming on with us. Yeah, thanks. It's been great. Yeah, thank you for having me on. You have a great rest of your day. You too. Take care. You too. Thank Thank you. you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Did Nothing Wrong podcast. If you want to hear more, you can go to didnothingwrongpod.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at James, the word four, and the letter M, all one word, and Grizza, B-J-J, G-R-Z-A, B-J-J, as well as DNW Pod. Thanks again for tuning in, and remember, everyone mentioned did nothing wrong.